Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 32. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 32. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. The whole notion of justice, like I've been thinking about justice since we last talked about it and kind of how you described mm. realizing that you weren't going to get justice and, and what that meant. And then I, I don't know, I just started thinking about how it seems like evangelicals are so focused on this notion of justice and... <laughs> You know, you mentioned yesterday, too, of the church and that one church and and their disparaging remarks against gays and, you know, that God was going to judge them and, you know, they were going to burn in hell. And I just started thinking, where where does this come from? Like, why is this such a preoccupation? Yeah. I, I mean, it was also triggered for me last week. I posted on my one of my other blogs. A, a blog post it was uh, I was kind of riffing on someone else's idea. It was Daniel Laporte, and uh. she had this thing about you know what if we what if we withheld judgment from the people that frustrate us? Maybe people in the context that she was kind of describing is people we don't know. You know, someone cuts us off in traffic, or someone's rude to us at work. Instead of getting so mad at them at what a jerk they are and whatever. Like, what if we gave them the benefit of the doubt? What if we just, and I'm also stealing from Brene Brown and, and, and she encourages, you know, what if, what if we just assumed that everyone was doing the absolute best that they can? Like, how does that change the way we look at things? Instead of saying that person is such an idiot or wow, if they weren't so stupid, they wouldn't have done that. Like maybe what if we were to, and, and this is assuming we don't know anything about them. What if instead of assuming that they were a complete idiot and that they could have done better, what if we assume that they're really just doing the best that they can? So the person that cuts us off in traffic cut us off because they're trying to like tighten their baby seatbelt and they accidentally swerved into our lane. Um, and so anyway, I posted this article and I thought, you know, this is a really, this is really something worthwhile. And I got a private comment back that said, yeah, but what about that person that really is a jerk? And what about that person that really is evil? And we're just, mm. you know, it seems like she's just letting everyone off the hook. Which, to me, I interpreted as, you know, justice needs to be served here. If this person's being a jerk, they need to be confronted. And if they're evil, they need to be dealt with. And Yeah. Well, I, I guess... W- I like what she says on the one hand, but it's funny when you said, you know, what would happen. And, and the first thing that crossed my mind is I'd get killed. You know, I guess, and I'm not, I'm saying that as an extreme comment, but that's you okay. know, if I, in certain situations, if if we think, oh, you know, they're, they're just doing the best that they can, which I guess would mean, like, I don't know what that would, actually, I don't really know what that would mean. Would that mean, yeah, she swerves in traffic a lot, but she, that's the best she can do. What did that mean? At that particular moment, that was the best she can do. But normally she's a safe driver. And I guess if it means the first, then I don't really care if that's the best she can do. It's not good enough for me. I'm not willing to be swerved into. And if it's the second, 
it's hard to know that. And so I'm not necessarily interested in, you know, justice or punishing her, but I am interested in, um, you know, it's interesting about the traffic one. I'm sensitive to that, right? Because my father uh, and brother died in a car accident that he caused and two other people died as a result. So four people got killed because of a large mistake my father made, you know, and, and, and I have to ask myself, was he doing the best he could at that time? And, you know, as I said in the last podcast, I love my dad and there are things I really hate about my dad and there are times that I have really hated him, but I don't think he was doing his best. I think at that moment, wow, that put, (laughs) he was, I picked a horrible example. Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know if maybe you picked a really good one, right? Because I could see it like on the generous side of me, I can see that in a situation where it's like. Hey, did you not see that I was in line here and you've just kind of like walked into me? I can, I can, you know, and I can be like irked, but on the situation where it's like, okay, this, this really costs a lot here. Like Fair the stakes point. are much higher. Fair. Yes. Point well made. Point well made. I think I'm thinking of this on the level of like I've been critical of people that I work with in my <laughs> mind, not to their face. And I'll think, man, that was just, that was just really not the best way to approach that problem. You know, if quote, you had been a little smarter or thought about this first, (laughs) you would have done this in a much better, much smarter way. Yeah. And I realized that in thinking that about that, I was judging them and in kind of putting on the lens of maybe this person is doing the best that they can. It -hmm. doesn't excuse the fact that they didn't create something that's, not very good, but I don't know. I guess maybe I felt like it, it helped me to not be as critical of them and just say, okay, maybe they created that and that was the best that they could. They were actually doing the best that they could. It wasn't because they were being negligent or sloppy. And mm-hmm. um, right. I'm still not okay. I, I still don't think it's great, but I think it takes a higher view of them as a person to to. To, to to apply one assumption versus the other. Yeah, and I think that's a good call about, you know, um, making that about uh, focusing on who they are, you know. But the good clarification here is, and that, that maybe this, the private comment that I got on my blog that I missed and that I think you've kind of made it a little clearer to me is it really does de- depend on the circumstances and the severity of the circumstances too. Yeah, yeah. So, but going back to this notion of justice, what do you, uh, it's just kind of in my consciousness that, you know, this is a big deal to Christians that, you know, you know, God will eventually reign his justice on this earth and justice will prevail and it's all going to come from God. We can't do it, but God can. And, you know, won't that be great when it does? Yeah. Do you want to... (laughs) <laughs> I, I just, I mean, I know this may sound uh, contradictory, but I, I really don't think that that's something that's supposed to matter much at all. I think that people focus on justice because it's easy. It's easy to understand. It's a, it's a one for one sort of economy, you know, and in the old Testament or the first Testament, however you want to call it in the Hebrew Bible, you have these examples of, you know, 
eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, these sorts of things. No, that's not, it's not completely like that, but, but there's a lot of that. And it's funny because, you know, we're no longer under the law in that sense. As Christians, you know, um, it, it's a new kind of orientation and that new orientation is really made clear in, you know, Jeremiah, say Jeremiah 31, uh, I think 33, where um, Jeremiah is describing uh, what the, uh, w- what someone under the new covenant would be like. And then they have this idea that I'm really, you know, I think is really huge that the law is written on the heart. And I think that the whole um, emphasis on justice is 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 way 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 off like i i still get really irked when i think about my dad i can i can get really angry and really upset but i mean i just it's not that i just kind of like i put the blinders on so i don't look there it's that i don't have any interest in going there i there i don't i don't need to have that debt repaid you know and god will do what god will do and and Things will work out between my, me and my dad, however they work out. But I am absolutely sure of one thing, which is completely central to my orientation, my focus in how I live my life and what, what's, what matters. And that, that is that God loves me profoundly. God loves me furiously. And to quote Brennan Manning. And in light of that, I don't, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really don't. And I think what I was trying to get at yesterday when we were talking about Job, you know, and, and Job has all of these points to raise against God, questions to put to God, and um, God doesn't respond to our circumstances per se. God responds with God's self. That's what we see in Job. You know, he's not making good on all the things that happen. He's saying, I am here and I'm in relationship with you. And that was exactly my experience. Well, <clears throat> not exactly my experience, but a distillation of my experience was that, you know, God didn't make everything better with me and my dad. But God showed up in, in exactly the way, looking back on it, that I needed God to show up. And God really showed up. And out of that, I don't, I don't have any gnawing desire for things to be, you know, justly settled with my father you know it's it's been a long time i admit it's been it's been 20 years right since these things took place but they've been eclipsed because i think what we want in the end is not things not somebody to say hey this was wrong we want somebody to be with us and to say you are right in the sense of you are good in the sense of really i love you I cherish you. I value you. And all the valuing we didn't get, all the disrespect we received, and all the lack that built up is washed away when we are in the face of genuine, legitimate love where somebody truly knows us and truly, deeply loves us. Those things just don't, they, they, they just... I don't spend my time thinking about all the negative stuff because I'm happy. I'm happy. You know, I, I, I wake up at night and I, I don't think about all the bad stuff like I used to and it was going on and before I had these experiences and as I was, you know, not kind of just struggling with this whole thing. But having this, these experiences of God, these key experiences that really kind of demonstrated God's, how much God knows me, how truly 
and how deeply God loves me. These things preoccupy me. I mean, I went and got a degree because of it. And I still am, you know, trying to figure out how am I going to change my vocation, my job, so that I get paid to do the stuff that I'm really good at and I really love, which is, you know, it's riffing on this stuff with you. It's, <laughs> it's having these conversations. I mean, it's helping people understand the degree to which God loves them and that that can be genuine and real for them in their lives, just as it was for me in my life. That's my job in life. And I'm not doing it too well. <laughs> Which, but yeah, but. <laughs> no, and as you're saying that, with the thing that, I don't know, I, I keep wanting to come back to this. It, it feels to me like so much of evangelical Christianity has focused on God's, well, I don't know, maybe it depends. Sometimes it focuses so heavily on God's judgment, like, you mm. know, or his judgment. I guess I'm thinking of judgment and justice interchangeably. But and usually the way it is explained is, you know, you know, the justice for our sin is death. And so, you know, Jesus came to take that away. Um, so the 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 camp that would be so focused on, you know, making sure that you're in heaven or that you get to heaven. So they would focus on this justice judgment aspect and not on the love aspect. I think so. In a big way, because I don't think they know what to do with the love. I think the love is just way too hard to figure out. And justice is so easy. You did that. You deserve this. Which which was interesting. So I, I looked up justice in the dictionary. And as I read the definition of justice, so the, uh, here are some definitions. Uh, the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishments, uh, the quality of being just, impartial, or fair, the principle or ideal of just dealing or right action, conformity to a principle or ideal, righteousness. Hmm. And as I read that, I thought, you know, <laughs> when I think of people wanting justice, they really want revenge, don't they? I mean, they really want... <laughs> like, like you, you think of, you know, justice has been served. You know, someone has, has committed a heinous crime or, uh, you know, something horrible. They've done something horrible. They've been sentenced to die, executed or jail or whatever. And, you know, the headline is justice has been served. And people feel somewhat good about that or some people do uh, the sense I get from those situations so is, is they feel good because that person's kind of gotten what they had coming to them in other words you know uh, in the sense of revenge or am I yeah. does that make sense I think so yeah I think that's a big part of it I mean there was uh, even even like in the tradition of the church that's been a big uh, a prominent idea somebody like Tertullian who is uh, I think think a second century thinker. So it's a, he's a long time ago, but he's, he's still, you can find him in theology texts, you can find references to him. And one of his uh, famous uh, kind of ideas was that one of the things that Christians will have as enjoyment in heaven is watching people suffer in hell. Oh! Yeah. And I just thought, you know, when I hear something like that, and, and fine, this is a judgment on my part, clearly, but... Um, I don't think that guy's got a good sense of the love of God. Because you know what? If, if you are not just 
totally tripping out on, hey, you know, I've been in love with this person for a long time and finally I get to hang out with them. Finally, I get to spend time with them. I get to be in their presence. I get to know them better. Are you really going to? And like, it, there's so, such contrary notions. One, being in the presence of your beloved. Two, watching other people suffer. Are those two things in any way, not even on par, but in the same ballpark? Are they in the same emotional spectrum? Like, no. This is this is some broken thinking, and I think I think part of part of what what's really wrong with some of these theological perspectives is that people's hearts have become very hard, very willing to accept ideas like. Uh, you know, it's, I, I don't know that we could go as far as to say that Calvin would say this, but um, this the idea of double predestination, which is uh, an upshot or an outworking of Calvinist thinking, which is that God uh, chooses some people to go to heaven. And that's all there, there is. You're going to go to heaven. And uh, God chooses some people to go to hell. And you that's, know, double, that's double predestination? Yes. So predestination is the idea that God chooses some people, and and the, you know there are a lot of problems with this this thinking, um, and with the theology behind it. Um, but double predestination is is kind of to say, well, if God's choosing some, then how does that working out with other people? You know, and and again, it's this kind of huge emphasis on God's sovereignty. But you also get people like, for instance, John Piper. I'm not a big fan of John Piper, as you know, and uh, he wrote in an article, you know, if God chooses to uh, to kill my son, then then I'm happy with that. And it kind of in a, I, I didn't read the article, but um, the sense I got was kind of in an Isaiah, uh, pardon me, a, 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 an Abraham and an Isaac type of sense. You know, God chooses to to kill my son. God chooses to use my son in that way, and that 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 he would be. He would be happy with that. And I just thought, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that God is real and that you have a relationship with God. And it's another thing to say, if God is God, I don't have much of a choice in the matter. You know, God chooses to do something. Who am I to stand against it? Well, that's true. I would agree with that. But to say that, you know, you're somehow going to enjoy it or be all right with it or whatever. I'm just, you know, I, I think there's something, you've turned off something emotionally. You've turned off something that it's not right to turn off. That you should, that should be there as a touchstone to reality to keep you from doing what, for example, Jerry Bridges would advocate, which is when you're in adverse situations, see life through the eyes of faith, not through the eyes of sense. No, you want to see them through both. And I think John Piper is doing exactly the same thing. He's practically speaking, he's taking and applying what Bridges is suggesting. And I think this is a very wrong proposition. This is not how we're supposed to engage with God. I'm supposed to be a whole human being with God. I'm not supposed to just back off and say, oh, you know, you chose to do this. You know, and that puts aside all the questions of how do you know it's God choosing to do this? What would that mean? Would God come and tell you? Why would God do that anyways? Does God need to tell you? How? how you know, how do you know it's God rather than the guy down the street who, you know, had a little too much to drink and was angry with his family and pulled out a gun and the shot went wide and bang, your son's dead. I don't know. 
it's just these things are pretty complicated but i for for me that type of mentality really smacks of something being absent in that person which is crucial for people to be in right relationship with god and all the theology and all of the you know seminary training will not make up for that you know if you try if i tried to make an argument from existence with my professors who were at all theologically oriented so being at a theological college not every class is a theology class and not every prof is a you know a theology prof some of them are exegetes some of them are you know um, Old Testament, New Testament guys, whatever. Some of them are history. But in the couple of classes I had with theology guys, they were incredibly resistant to the idea that our human experience can be a valid informer, you know, in comparison with the validity of Scripture as an informer. Well, yeah, because, well, the way it, I always heard it explained was that that was because you know we're sinful and fallen and so we can't completely trust our emotions and our experiences because uh we're quote you know we're broken which i i just believe less and less well yeah and i think that's really problematic because on the one hand they want to say that our emotions are no good when it comes to most things but when it comes to being emotionally attached to god <laughs> well, all of a sudden, then you're they're right. On the money. So, so is it only the target that matters? And and then and then, of course, we have the problem of false religion. You know, I am sure that some of the Hebrews in the Old Testament mental period. I don't. I don't think every single person in Israel, when God was calling Isaiah, calling Jeremiah, calling the minor prophets, I do not believe that it is possible that every single person who was there who was part of the mainstream of the religious the main the mainstream of, of religious activity was aware that they were doing something that was wrong and they were hell bent on perpetuating the wrongness i think a lot of people were duped a lot of people should have been maybe taking a little more time should have been or maybe some people were afraid and didn't know what to do but I think the idea that, that everybody knows exactly when they're doing something that's, that's, that's you know, a problem is, is incorrect. And so you have this idea of false religion. And how are you supposed to work your way around that? How are you supposed to deal with the fact that you could very well be, um, you know, having these great happy feelings about God and, and you're, you're dealing with, um, I don't know, Jim Jones's church. You still got a problem. You got the wrong God but you got the right feelings towards something you call god like it's such a it's a it's a complicated situation and the interpretive um dance steps that go into it are are tricky they're not easy what would happen when you would push these profs cuz i'm guessing you did <laughs> <laughs> some of them were were good some of them i learned okay uh some of them i learned that you can only push in a paper i had one fellow and and I quickly learned that, you know, um, he's not going to tolerate any of this. He has his own views. And the best thing he said to me was he said, I was, I was talking about Augustine and love and the centrality of love. And he said, well, I guess you'd have to argue that in a paper. And just completely <laughs> shut me down. 
And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do that. And I did. And, uh, you know, kudos to him. He, he really uh, engaged with it. He, he didn't say, oh, this is Greg with that comment that he made. And he's kind of turned it into this big term paper. And um, I'm going to just, I know what I'm going to give this paper already. He, he, he went through it and the idea was conflictual with, with his and he gave me, it gave me the best mark he could have. He gave me the, he gave me like an A plus on this paper, which the guy just, you know, I, I don't know if there were any more of them, but I got one. So I thought, okay, you know, he's really, he's honest. He didn't, he doesn't agree with me, but he thinks it's a well-argued case. For others of them, what I found was, um, you know, it would mostly be Q&A time. And I would go up after every class. I was one of the few people that was always there asking questions. And my prof, one prof, my, my thesis supervisor, who, who later became my thesis supervisor, uh, would, you know, I'd say something and he would respond. And I would say, well, I'm not sure how that works out with this. And eventually he, he got to the point, you know, when he realized that I would going, was going to challenge him and I kept challenging him in a certain direction. And, you know, I, he eventually came to see my challenges as valid, but he would, he would, every time he asked, he answered my questions, he would answer them. And then he would say, no, at the end, like, I know you're going to say something back to me. I know you're not going to fully agree. So, <laughs> so I, it was a mix, but then I've, I've heard of other, you know, I don't mean to, I don't mean to speak badly or out of turn. And I know this guy is, is an icon. He is an icon in evangelical um, Christianity. But I had a friend who, so I did, under, I did languages in my undergrad, and I was pretty good. And we took a couple language courses together. She did Greek and Hebrew, and she went much further than I did. And she was good. She was very, very good. And she took all of the Greek offered at my college. She took three or four years of Greek, which doesn't put her at the same level as one of the professors, but it puts her at a very good level. She's able to have a conversation with them and, and, and everybody's understanding everything. And we both talked about this and neither one of us took the, any, uh, had taken any of the theology courses up until that point. And I went through the whole thing. I took none. I took some exegesis courses, but I took no theology. And uh, she, we were both reticent about taking the theology courses there. And she had two years of, of Hebrew. She had three or four years of Greek. She had TA'd and, and I think taught Greek at the highest uh, or at the lowest level. She taught an intro Greek course. So you've got to be really good to be able to do that. Um, and she took Packer, J.I. Packer's theology course. And she had some divergent views from Packer. Packer is extremely reformed. Um, and in fact, the, the, all, everybody teaching theology, whether it's Paul Helm, who was there at one time, John Stackhouse, Hans Borsma, you know, and there may be somebody new now. I don't know. I'm assuming Packer's still teaching. But these are the people that were teaching in the mid-late 2000s when I was there. And these guys are all extremely reformed which is a very interesting thing for uh, an institution that claims to be trans-denominational. Um, but she took his class and she said, you know, she got into conversations with him and she just, she just, he just, you just couldn't go anywhere. He just kept coming back to some of his, you know, this is the position and this is the position. And she would go back to the text and say, well, the text says this and other people are looking at it this way. And I see this and, and he wouldn't engage there. Which, if I'm understanding her correctly, and I, I think I am, um, is um, 
that's not playing fair ball. And that's the, that's, that's a very nice way of putting it. Um, because there's a, there's a, there's a tense, hmm, hopefully there's a friendly relationship, but there can be a tense relationship between theology and exegesis. So exegesis is, you know, what does this verse mean? And what does it mean in this chapter? And then what does the chapter as a whole mean? What does this chapter mean? And what does the book, what does it mean within this book? And what does the book mean? And we're reading it as what it is in its kind of, in its context. And then we might say, you know, exegesis might be also informed, exegesis of Paul in Romans would be informed of, say, what Paul has written in Corinthians or in Galatians or in Ephesians. Theology, on the other hand, takes ideas from all over the place, all over the Bible, and it creates a general sort of sense of understanding of different concepts related to God, theology, study of God. And so theology is on the one hand informed by exegesis, on the other hand, it informs exegesis and vice versa. But the point that I'm kind of, the culminating point I'm making, I guess, is that if you have a theologian who is not open to their points, their theology being challenged on the basis of exegesis, you have a problem. You have a problem, A, as the person going to that theologian, B, as a theologian, you have a problem. You are too entrenched in a position that is supposedly based on the text, and yet when someone comes to you and says, you know, I have... uh, the way you're reading this text, there are a lot of other people who are quite credible who read this differently. And when we bring this in and correlate it with these other texts, I see this going in a different direction. And I guess... Um, well, sounds like a bunch of our churches today. Yeah. The church well, it, has it, the view. The pastor has the view. If you bring up anything contrary to it, you're either liberal or some nut job. Yeah. But I guess for even more so what... What I would hope, what I'd hope my friend would say to me was, you know, I had an interesting discussion with J.I. Packer and he sees things this way. And when I raised how I see them and I raised the, the exegesis and the exegetes and we had this kind of comment about the exegesis, he said to me, hmm, interesting. I see where you're coming from. Yes, I see what those people are saying. I don't, I don't personally hold to that view, but I see where you're coming from. And I think that would be a quite a fair way of responding but the sense I got was, um, well, I guess you could hold that view, but I don't think it's a good one. I don't think it's the right one. I don't think it works. Without coming back to say, yeah, well, here's why. Here's, they're, they're actually wrong. And so the difference I'm seeing is, like, <laughs> I'll make it really super obvious and clear. One second. So we've been talking about Jerry Bridges trusting God. Did you read some more? Yeah. This is the last chap, last verse, pardon me, <laughs> thinking too much Bible. Last paragraph of the preface. I want to express my appreciation, this is on page 11, to a number of people who have contributed to the writing of the book. I'll skip one sentence. The next sentence. Dr. J.I. Packer graciously agreed to review some of the key chapters to check the theological accuracy. So, I guess what I'm saying is, you <laughs> next see, to grind here. <laughs> you see, you see. Well, you see the trickle down, right? You see the trickle down, and this is a very obvious trickle down, right? J.I. Packer helped me figure this out. Well, okay, he helped you figure it out in a very in in his way of thinking, which 
you know, as I understand from my, from reading Packer and from hearing people who've been in classes with Packer or at least one person who's, who's a very, very, who had the most skill of any student I can imagine in exegesis and, and Greek, um, that, that, that my, my college at a graduate level could prepare. So they're all breathing their own exhaust. I don't think they all are, but I think that... It's a closed system. Like, it's... Yeah, a lot of it is. And nobody, and you know, nobody's going to challenge him. My, my friend had a very hard time, and I, I'm doubtful that she pushed very hard. But she, I could, I could hear the frustration in her voice, and I could hear, I could just see her being upset. And it's like, this guy is not, he's not interacting with me. This isn't fair. This isn't right. You know, and I, I totally agree. And then Packer has an effect on Bridges. Bridges writes a book called Trusting God. People embrace this book as here's how you do it. And we have this widespread notion. And I think on the one hand, we need to change how the church works on a practical level. People need to be caring and relating to people in a different way. But on the other hand, we need to change what's going on in academia. We have to have these, we have to have somebody, you know, sitting in Packer's classes. And if I didn't need the grade, and I could spare the money and the time, which I, I needed the grade and I couldn't spare the money, I'd love to sit in this class and say, you know what, I, I disagree. And I'd, I'd like to hear how you kind of interact with some of these other ideas and, and, and push, the, push the envelope a little bit with them. But So going back, going back a little bit, you said that a lot of these guys were reformed. What, is, what does that mean? Um, reformed theology... Um, or sometimes Dutch Reformed. Um, is that the same as Arminianism? Armin- no, it's it's exact the exact opposite. Typically, okay. Uh, a Reformed perspective is a perspective that would generally um, validate or be strongly based on John Calvin's perspectives. Uh, Calvin is a major figure, uh, maybe the figure probably the figure in Reformed theology. And what Calvin did, see a lot of these ideas, predestination and things of, of that nature, um, come out of Augustine. Um, the, the amazing thing about Augustine is that at the time of the Reformation, the Catholics said, Augustine is on our side. And the Protestants said, Augustine is on our side. And the truly amazing thing is they're both right. And they're both right because Augustine was at that point and probably up until modern times, up until, you know, you could, you know, it's like having your own printing press, having your own, your computer here and your printer. But this guy in the fourth century was so prolific and he pumped out so much stuff and he covered so much ground. But he put out a lot of these ideas and um, uh, what, Cal- what, what Calvin did is he, he took what Augustine had had on the one hand started on the other hand what what Augustine was very careful about and I I think he gets my respect on this point is that he he really um, believed in the notion that you know I can know a lot here but there's always going to there always going to be parts that are mysterious that I can't know and I'm going to delve and push the envelope I'm going to push as far as I can but at the end of the day I'm going to kind of you know, kind of say, I'm not too sure on some of this stuff. So uh, Augustine would say that, that people are elected to be Christians. I'm not sure if he would use that exact language, but I think that would be essentially his idea. But he would not say, not overtly, people are elected to go to hell. He would not say that. And even if you said to him, listen, man, you're saying that there are 10 people, three go 
to heaven, you know where the other seven go. But and he would be like, well, uh, yeah, but this is a kind of mysterious thing. We're not entirely. <laughs> and so <clears throat> what, what, what Calvin did is he systematized a lot of this stuff and is systematizing it. Um, and I've read very little of Calvin. I've read a few books of the Institute and that was a long time ago. But essentially what Calvin did is he really took a lot of the, the mystery and the kind of, uh, the, hmm, not too sure, shrug of the shoulders sort of thing. Um, you know, not, not in a, a lazy man's sort of shrug of the shoulders, but, you know, at the end of the day, shrug of the shoulders. He took that away. And, and so a reform perspective is very, very, very epistemologically heavy, which means it's very, very concerned with knowledge. It's very, very concerned with analysis. And uh, so you get a lot of... Um, what, what they call Christian philosophers, uh, Alvin Planinga, uh, Nicholas Walterstorff being two of the, the main ones uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, these guys are very big. And, and um, you know, we're really focusing, say, on uh, the Bible on, as opposed to experience. We're really focusing on um, some very... Um, we have some very clear, definable, and um, I don't want to kind of paint them the wrong way, but clear and definable understandings of who God is. We we can't wrap our arms around God, but but we we have a, we have some 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 clear understandings from the Bible, and so everything to do with with this notion of predestination. This is a very very reformed notion, and and you know it was kind of I think it always was the made out to be the, the pill that once you kind of got advanced in your Christianity, you, you, you got to the place where you were presented with this idea and you had to swallow it. And if you were a good Christian and you could be advanced, you know, if, if you, you could swallow it, it's like, it's like being an advanced skier and they say, okay, listen, we're taking you to the double black diamonds. And, you know, the reality is here, like you could die, you could break your legs on this if you screw up. But, you know, that's the pill you got to swallow. You got to swallow your fear. You got to take the plunge. You've got the skills make it happen, ski this, have fun. And my sense of um, reform theology, uh, I don't think there is any such thing as a reform theology which is not Calvinistic and which is not uh, predestinarian. And um, these are huge, huge, huge tenets. I mean, the, the reforms have also, you know, so you'll find Dutch reformed churches where, churches where, you know, it's not a problem for people to smoke. It's not a pop problem for people to drink. And, and I happen to think that um, you know, w- within reason, um, some of those propositions are better than the teetotaler propositions that say you can't smoke and you can't drink. You know, I think I think smoking and drinking has its problems, but so does not smoking and not drinking. You know, depending upon how it's all laid out. But so, you know, and, and I think the reform tradition also, to its credit, has been much more intellectual. They have had a greater uh, focus on the arts, kind of like uh, the Catholic tradition. Uh, like Catholicism. But and, what's the, so what's the flip side of this, though? The flip side? Well, you see, a, a predestinarian, a Calvinist perspective is extremely... They, they, what they want to say is God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is making these choices. And it's very, very much about God, right? And um, the flip side of that, you have something called Arminianism. And I... I, I hesitate to say that that's the flip side because um, 
it's another option i think that yes yes there are other options between calvinism and arminianism i think that the way that they've been set up as a closed system a binary relationship is 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 actually false and that's one of the things that i tried to promote indirectly in some of my work but arminian system of thinking would say you know hey you know human beings have free will and and of course the calvinists look at this and say you know you're starting off on the wrong foot already the reformed people uh, someone with calvinist thinking would say don't you don't you can't start with human beings nothing started with human beings you have to start with god who is god well god is sovereign god is god and that's where you start you don't start with your free will you know god is and they they um, you know, they marshal a number of texts in their defense, and, and I think that those texts bear, bear reading. I, I think that some of the um, more recent exegesis, notably by, by N.T. Wright uh, and others in the, the kind of new perspectives on Paul school, um, have, have I, I, th- I think that they have, they have defeated the, uh, um, the Reformed and the Calvinistic interpretations of some of those key texts like Romans 9 through 11 and some of the texts in Galatians. And, um, but, but I think that part of the problem too is that we've come away from this notion we talked about the last time of, of all of this theology and all of your Christianity has to kind of be grounded in and make sense of real life. And I think if we do that, if we come back, if we move away from this, you see, it's really interesting that we're talking about you know, Calvinism and Reformed theology. And I was kind of reading Bridges and he's so big on the sovereignty of God. And, but it's not either necessarily about God being sovereign or about humans having free will, but that we totally missed this huge piece. Why are you so focused on God's sovereignty? Like take a, the Westminster Confession. It's a very, very Reformed document. It's a document made by the Reformed Church. And the number one, the reason for the existence of of humanity, or they would say the existence of man. Let me read this to you. I'm leafing through this on on the internet and I can't find it. The chief goal of man is to enjoy, is I think to serve God and enjoy God forever. Uh, I shouldn't. Let me just see if I can. The point I'm getting to is that there's nothing in there about the huge priority of God loving us and us loving God. I wouldn't say nothing, but it falls far down on the list. And this is what I see in both of these perspectives. It's not about human free will, necessarily. It's not about God's sovereignty, necessarily. We've forgotten, you know, on the one hand, and when we're dealing with God, God is sovereign. God is king, if you like. God is also parent. And those things are presented equally in Scripture. To have one without the other is to have a disjointed picture of God. Humans have free will. Humans also have a basic nature that is built into us, such that when certain people display certain characteristics, we don't say that they're wicked or wrong, we say that they're sick, they're broken, they're, they're ill. And when you put those two things together, when you have God who is both um, truly sovereign and who is, um, you know, 
our, our truest and most loving parent. And you have human beings who can make, on the one hand, free choices, and yet who have a basic nature that is, to my mind, you know, oriented towards love. You don't find little children kind of pushing their parents away and saying, oh, yeah, I'm not interested in you. I don't need you. You know, there's both dependence there, but there's also attachment. That attachment is for more than just nourishment. It's more than just clothing and food. And I guess when I see these two things coming together, I see, you know, and, and the Bible talks about us. We're both servants, servants to God as sovereign, servants to a king who, who owe God obedience service. We're also children. We're children to a parent. And the key quality of that relationship is not obedience, it's love. And I think what we've done is we've abstracted love out of this relationship. And I think that, I think we've blown it. I think we've made Christianity into something that is untenable, that doesn't work, that, you know, you're kind of saying, oh, I'm in, advanced, I'm in advanced Christianity now. I have to kind of uh, deal with the fact and kind of harden myself to the fact that, that God has only chosen certain people to go to heaven. And maybe, depending upon how you read it, God's chosen, literally chosen other people to go to hell. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's kind <laughs> guess, of long-winded. <laughs> My question would be, so if you're not reformed and you're not, you don't hold to Arminianism, Armin, however you say that word, what, how, how is your position on this described? Or can it be put in a box? I don't know if there is a, a, good, uh, a good box to put it in. Um, I would, I, I guess I would say it the way I just said it, like putting God's sovereignty above all of the things is a mistake. The text doesn't do it. Why should we? Because we're trying, again, I think it's an easy way out. It's an easy way of coming to a solution, you know, and when we abstract sovereignty from parenthood, we end up focusing on things like holiness, truth, uh, justice, and we leave out things like love, mercy, compassion, or love, mercy, and compassion. They're there. But, you know, it's funny. Piper, John Piper wrote this paper and it's called, the title of the paper was, How Can a Sovereign God Love? And I'm just like, how can you possibly think that way? Like you've totally, you've totally missed it. You've totally missed the boat. How can a, it's not how can a sovereign God love? God is not sovereign in such a way that God does not love because you've, you've, you've mischaracterized God. You know, and I guess, I guess this at base is what bothers me. On the one hand, I have a theological problem. But on the other hand, my theological problem stems from the fact that I have a lived existential pain. I experience it and I see other people experiencing it. It's, it's almost like when you, um, if you have an ailment, the right pharmaceutical is great, but the wrong pharmaceutical might give you double the problem. Or you still got your old problem and then you got a new one. 
and and this is how I see it with with some of these some of these theologies. So I don't really know if there is a, a name, like a I don't think there is one for the theological position that I kind of inhabit. Um, but I think God is truly sovereign. God is truly parent. I have free choices, but I'll tell you what, my heart is not free. When I fall in love, my heart is not, I am not free to do whatever I want. I'm not. I'm not only a white guy who's in his mid forties, who grew up in, you know, Canada in a certain socioeconomic bracket, which, which has pre-programmed me in certain ways. You know, not that I can't become conscious of those, not that I'm like a slave to some sort of North American white middle class ethos, but there's definitely some conditioning and, and some, some tradition almost, if you like, that's, that's part of my makeup. But I also have a human makeup that I think is, is, is when it's working well, is directed in two ways. On the one hand, it's directed towards love. I seek love. I desire to be loved and I desire to love. I also seek truth. I don't want to be deceived. I want to love somebody who truly loves me. I want to be in right relationship with that person. I don't want to have a, a false, hollow facade of a relationship. And so when I combine God as parent, God as sovereign, me as free, and yet m- me as having certain essential qualities to my nature, what I see is that these things, when they come together, that is, that is where I am most, most myself. I am most the self that I can be in the context of being a free chooser who is deeply in love and truly loved by God, who is both a sovereign, who is truly God, and who is my parent, who loves me more deeply than anyone or anything ever has or will. And in that context, I flourish. I am the me that I love, that I love to be, the me that I am proud of and pleased to be, the me that I enjoy and that other people enjoy. I don't know if that's... Well said. Theology or... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Is that a good place to leave things? Yeah, I think so. Man, I still cannot find the... uh, Still cannot find what I was looking for. Oh, here you go. The Westminster Confession of of Faith, the larger catechism. Let me just read this out to you. Talks about being a human being. What is the chief and highest end of man? Bear in mind, this was written a long time ago. The chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. If that somehow means being loving God and being loved by God and loving my neighbors myself, I have to think that who, would, whatever collective of bright scholars put this together could have written it so that I, who's not a dim person, would get that. I don't get that. And this, I guess, is what I mean. This is a, a very reformed document telling us, you know, in this case, 
what's the purpose of a human being? And I already know that. And I have to say, this is wrong. You know, and they're quoting Romans eleven thirty six, Psalm, da, 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 da. How about just like, what's the greatest commandment? What is the chief and highest end of a human being? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all that you are. To love yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself. Anything else that's put in there is making a claim about what the greatest commandment is, about what the priority is for those who follow Christianity, who follow Christ. And unless they're either willing to say that the gospel writers got it wrong, that Jesus wasn't too clear, or that they've got some new information, I've got no clue how to read this as something that's accurate. But again, from the perspective of God as sovereign, think about it this way. If God's sovereign, your chief and highest goal is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. But when God's my parent, this makes no sense at all. But isn't that kind of twisted? Like, how do you enjoy a sovereign? I don't know. I don't know. I get the serve part. Or what, what, what does it say it again? Uh, to glorify and enjoy. So I, I, get, I totally get how you might glorify a sovereign. I don't understand how you would, quote, enjoy a sovereign. Maybe well, enjoy th- the benefits that a sovereign provides? Yeah, or, or be in relationship with this sovereign. But it's, it's interesting here because none of this, none of this focuses on love. And yet nowhere that I know of has the Reformed tradition kind of cut back on this and said, eh, you know, we were a little bit off on this. But, but I think this is part of what for me really, really irks me because you're getting at a, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that what happens in the church necessarily flows down from the more academic understandings, but clearly ministers are trained. They're trained in seminaries and they're taught certain things. And if, if you're someone in the Reformed tradition, you know this stuff. Like if I was to say to a, a Reformed minister, you know, do you, what do you recall about the larger catechism, the Westminster Confession? Most of them could tell me this. You know, maybe not word for word, but they'd give me the sense of what it was. And I think that those um, ideas have to have an impact on how we live. How ministers end up pastoring and ministering to their congregations and the ideas that they teach. And so for me, this is, this is extremely, it's almost, um, I mean, I don't know another word to use. And I, and I, I kind of hesitate because I think people could use this word of me or, or they might in a, in a kind of a quick way. And maybe I'm being too quick, but I don't think so. It's almost heretical. I, I have no sense of how you can extract this idea of what it is to be, what is the chief end of, a hum, of humanity? The chief end of humanity is to be rightly related to God, which means to love God with all your heart, with all that you are, to love yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other starting place. If we start someplace else, we will end up someplace else. If we start in the wrong place, we'll end in the wrong place. Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 32. 
If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey, untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.